Hello and welcome to the NC podcast. My name is Natasha Collins and I am the host and founder of NC Real Estate, which includes its members clubs for landlords and property investors to come and build profitable property portfolios that completely align with their goals. If you haven't already, head on over to ncrealestate.co.uk where you will find all of the amazing goodness that I put out. So including my programs, my blogs, you will find back episodes of this podcast. So go and take a look. And if you're not already following me on social media, come across to Instagram at Natasha C. Collins or Property Investment Mastery Facebook group. So today I'm very excited and I hope you've all warmed up for this, by the way, and listened to the past two podcasts where I've told you to get your ducks in a line because this is what you're going to be wanting to listen to so that you can start uh, going one step further. I'm so excited. I have got Shaz Ahmed on the podcast today. He is a finance specialist, public speaker, multi-award winning business owner, as well as having a great social media presence, which is where we came across one another. Hi, Shaz. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, hey, Natasha. How's it going? Thanks for having me. Good. Thank you. How are you? All good. Honored to be here. I've been following for a while, actually. Oh, thank you. Oh, it's <laughs> such a pleasure having you on. Uh, yeah, no, all good, all good. Enjoying the weather. Oh, it's nice, isn't it? The UK seems to be in like the mid thirties. It is, except everyone's rushing to the beaches, and it's like you know emergency incidents. If people are not staying at home, stay home, stay safe. <laughs> yeah, don't let this spread any further, because we would all like to be mm. able to travel once it's safe. Absolutely. So let's get into um, let's get into the crux of this pod, because I really want to talk to you about all things finance so awesome. firstly how did you get started with property finance how did i get started so I, luck by chance i guess i was actually in a call center job for lloyd's bank um just but that was more like you know general inquiries hey what's my balance hey what's my credit card limit general call center stuff you know wasn't i was, but I was really comfortable i wasn't going anywhere i was really happy i was young at the time um but then two of my friends had left and joined Barclays to do residential mortgages. And they were like, Shaz, come on, join us, join us. And you know, again, I was like, okay, cool, you know, why not? Uh, Barclays paid for our CMAP qualifications, which is great because it's very rare for that to happen. Oh. Took a month steady leave just to get that done. And I was in Barclays for the best part of seven years. Um, but that again was call center, residential, you know, your first time buyers, people moving home. I enjoyed it and it was definitely good to learn more corporate stuff, you know, compliance, processes, structure, which actually is useful in what I do now. They made us redundant, unfortunately, so they moved all the jobs up to Liverpool, which, you know, great. I love Liverpool. Um, a six months gardening leave, which I totally enjoyed setting the business. Mm -hmm. um, at the end of that, I was like, look, what am I going to do now? Because this business can run itself if it needs to. I actually want to do something that I enjoy. And what I enjoyed, I did do enjoy the finance aspect, but I also enjoyed sales. I've always been into sales and, and there was a job opening locally uh, at a mortgage broker firm. So initially it was hard to get my head around the difference between an advisor and a broker mm -hmm. and what the differences are. So main difference is as an advisor, you're fed your, your business, your leads just calling in. As a broker, you've got to get, those, get that business somehow. Yeah. So a lot of networking, a lot of knowledge building. I didn't have a clue what a HMO was back then because... Barclays didn't do HMOs. So a lot of knowledge building um, and a lot of kind of like, you know, in the deep end, it's sink or swim, just, just get it done. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that leads you to 
where you are today you know, more like mortgage specialist how is the lending market right now i think you know what it's it's interesting so we spoke just before the show i was abroad when all of this happened and actually there's, there was still some lenders still lending even during the crisis they were just i hate the word they were pivoting in their <laughs> processes but so instead of physical valuations which was the main thing the main thing was physical valuations couldn't happen right mm -hmm. So those lenders were just doing desktop valuations instead, which aren't as accurate, but it's a means to an end. You'll get what you want out of it. But now we're seeing more of the specialist products come back. So your short-term lets, bridging, loan-to-values are increasing, HMOs are coming back in vogue. So I don't think lending ever stopped. I think caution was placed, but now mm -hmm. as restrictions are easing up, so in England, surveyors can go out. In Wales, surveyors can go out now and in Scotland. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say it's normal. It's never going to be normal again, but it's we're getting back to a sense where we can just transact and do business pretty much as we were. Okay. So what are you seeing now from lenders? Has loan-to-value dropped? Are interest rates changing? So, yeah, prior to, to lockdown and COVID, uh, you could get buy-to-let mortgages up to 85% loan-to-value. But even then, I'd be like, do you want to be that highly geared? Because what if something happened? You know, what are you going to do? But you could. Um, however, now the max loan to value is at 75% and that's across the board. There's Virgin Money doing 80% in a personal name. Okay. But again, the rate reflects the risk they're taking. What rates are we uh, looking at? You're looking at the best part of 3.5% plus, which isn't, it's not too bad, but it's not ideal. And just a quick aside, so personal name versus limited company, you've got to speak to your accountant about your strategy because whilst you may get a, a more competitive rate in a personal name, is it worth the tax difference in a limited company? So it's all those things you have to consider. But yeah, 75% generally across the board. What seems to be happening is if you've done a recent conversion, so a HMO conversion and you're refinancing within six or 12 months, some lenders are now saying, well, we'll cap that at 70%. We don't want to take the risk at 75. A lot of lenders are saying, well, look, if it's a student-let HMO, then we're probably not going to lend because what is the student market going to do? Or they're asking for additional questions such as, does this work as a professional let? Have you got rents paid up for this year and next year? Has this particular university said they're going to reopen or they're going to go digital? It's a lot of long-term plausibility that's been asked for as opposed to the here and now. Okay. So they're far more reserved and there's more hoops to jump through? A lot more questioning up front. Okay. Um, so, for example, again, a lot of lenders at the moment don't have a minimum income requirement. You could be out of work or you could be just working part-time and still get a buy-to-let mortgage because mm. typically it's based on the rental of the property. Yep. What lenders want to know now though up front is okay fine you know you haven't got a job or you've got very little income it's not a problem however we just want to be comfortable that if there were any voids or repairs that you could cover them so do you have anything in savings or in an account balance that would give us comfort that you can cover those. So previously whilst they would still do those checks they wouldn't ask that up front now mm. those things are being asked really early on which I think is a good thing. Yeah. Um, just to make sure lenders are comfortable in the long term, things like payment holidays and you know won't be an issue. Mm -hmm. And so, what are they doing if you did take a mortgage holiday during COVID, or you're still on your mortgage holiday? So it's an interesting one. Um, and again, kind of lenders' thoughts are changing daily on this. Okay. Initially, if you've taken a payment holiday on a buy-to-let or a residential, it's a straight no. We can't lend you money. But there is a, there's a decent rationale for this. I. My actual genuine opinion is if you've taken a payment holiday on your buy-to-let mortgage, right, 
then what you're saying to a lender is that you couldn't cover a month of voids. Now, as a landlord, you know, you know that you'll have some voids at some point, right? Yeah. So if you're going to run to your lender for a payment holiday when that happens, that's not really when it gets a good business. You should have something in reserve. Mm-hmm. That's just my opinion. Okay. I agree with um, you. So lenders are checking that. They're kind of asking, have you taken any holidays? The rationale, why? If it's on a residential mortgage, there is more flexibility because that means your personal income has been affected and you just have to take the holiday. To be fair, when these were announced, they weren't announced very well. They weren't rolled out properly. It was the case of, hey, just take these holidays and your credit report will be affected. And yeah, technically your credit score is not going to be affected, but lenders underwrite manually. So when they see your credit file, they'll see that you've taken these holidays and that's when the question starts. So it's not the end of the world. There are lenders who will consider it subject to good rationale, but be prepared to be asking those questions, I know, being asked those questions and answer it in a way that makes sense. Yes. Yeah, of course. (laughs) I I can understand that. Yeah, I was going to say a similar thing with the bounce back loans as well. Um, so it's just the way that a lot of it isn't the investor's fault. I think the way these things have been rolled out, it's like, hey, bounce back loan, 12 months interest free, back by the government, apply now. And it's, it's almost if why wouldn't you do it? But I've had a few cases now with certain lenders where they're saying, well, your client's taking a bounce back loan. Therefore, we see them as a struggling business. Therefore, we can't lend. Um, and it's an absolute pain. Um, so again, I think with the bounce back loan, the issue I'm, my personal thought on it is the fact that you're allowed to self-declare your turnover for next year and that forms the basis of how much you can borrow it is scandalous. Um, I've had someone read through the terms and conditions and they've said this is one of the easiest contracts to get out of. So if you didn't pay it back, it's very weak in terms of the contract. But, you know, it's it's taxpayers money end of the day i think you should be very careful um and if you borrow the full 50k although it's interest free for 12 months i believe after the 12 months payment works out about 890 pounds mm-hmm. a month so unless you invested it wisely how are you going to pay that back well this is it and it was so easy to get hold of these mm-hmm. loans i mean mm-hmm. four clicks with natwest you got it yeah yeah absolutely and I can see it being like interest only in PPI all over again, saying, well, it was missold to me, so therefore I'm not going to pay it back. But you can, you're, you're going to get those cold calls in, in <laughs> <Yeah>. time. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you overpay on your bounce back loan? Oh, yeah. my were God. You, were you missold 50 grand? Yes, I was. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know what happened to it. At some yeah. point along the way, <laughs> it's gone. Also, yeah, with the bounce back loans, you can't use it for a deposit for a property. Mm-hmm. Or you may think you can, but lenders will not lend you if that's what you're doing, if that's the source of funds. Lenders are more flexible if it's being used for refurbishment of a property. So okay. just keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. And so are they, if you've taken it out on a company that you are not buying with, do they still take it into account? They do? Yeah, so because essentially if that's going to be used as part of the funds for another purchase, they want a source of funds, generally a three or four month audit trail oh, of yeah. where the money's come from. So yeah, like I've had a lot of investors ask me these creative ways. So can my brother take the loan? He can gift it to his wife and she can give it to me. Yeah, you can, but well, you see that trail and therefore it's, it's going to be a no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, I get it. Yeah. Um, Because there's a lot of money floating around at the moment where people are, are saying, well, you know, if I earn 10% on this and I'm paying 2.5% back, well, why wouldn't I? Because I actually earn more on it. Yeah. 
that why wouldn't you? But again, I think what you got to think is when you go to a lender, it's their money, so they make the rules. You know, they they may just simply decide not to lend you. Mm-hmm. What I, what I found interesting was the week or so after these bounce back loans were announced, you see on social media people saying, "Who wants to lend me fifty k for X amount of return?" And it's like they're clearly asking people who've taken out the bounce back loans to invest in them. Oh, social media makes me laugh as well. Oh, we should actually touch on that. I'll bring that back up. Mm, so, cool. what? Let's have. Let's talk about the things that you've been advocating. So, let's talk about your imagine yep. massive advocate of Bridge to Let. How, how does this work? What banks are doing this, and what interest rates should we expect to see? Awesome. So, yeah, with Bridge to Let, I think I'm more of an advocate of just comparing and considering the options. Yeah. Um, because a lot of investors, especially the newer investors, you'll talk to them about bridging and they will run a mile. It's too expensive. No, not doing it. And then as soon as you mention bridge to let, they're like, oh, okay, that's interesting, even though technically it's similar. Um, so a bridge to let, just to explain, is when you take a bridging loan and a mortgage with one lender. So it's one more streamlined process um, and your valuations are a little more secure. Mm-hmm. So one underwriting process will get you the offer for the bridge and the mortgage. The value that goes out on day one for the bridge will also confirm an end value for the project based on your schedule of works, which sounds good, right? But you've still got to do the work. So if you change the work you've done or change your plan, it doesn't, it's not guaranteed in that sense. Mm-hmm. So there is a reinspection, but the bonus is the person who reinspects it generally is the same value from six months ago. Okay. So in theory, if you've done all the work you said you're going to do, they can't really change their figures because they've got it all done. Mm-hmm. So that's the process. Uh, the lenders offering it. So the lender that does it as a full-on project and a full-on app, uh, product is Precise Mortgages. Mm-hmm. However, they've currently discontinued it at the moment. I don't quite understand because they've relaunched their bridging and they've relaunched their mortgages. So it makes sense to put the all-in-one product back in. But they were the ones doing it as an all-in-one streamlined yeah. option. Rates on that, you're looking at 0.79% for the bridging side of it, which is pretty competitive and on the mortgages and this is where you have to really compare on the mortgages you're typically paying about a quarter of a percent more than what a standard buy to let mortgage would be okay so they were kind of pulling you in with the initial benefit but keeping you paying more on the longer yeah shawbrook bank uh, does something slightly similar they call it a refurbishment bridge mm-hmm. what they do is they'll give you 75 percent against the purchase price plus 100% of the works, as long as it's not more than 85% of the initial purchase price. So up front, you're getting a lot more money. And then if you refinance with Shawbrook, you get certain benefits like reduction on your application fees and so on. The only thing I say with Shawbrook is they're a commercial lender, so their mortgage rates will start with a four, which, you know, if it's a commercial proposition, great, but generally if you're doing a single let, maybe not Shawbrook. Lend Invest offer a bridge to let bridge, but it's not really bridge to let. If you want to refinance with them, it's a whole new application. Okay. But the benefit with their bridge to let is the rates are generally lower. They were, to be fair, they were really, really low before lockdown. They were doing it at 0.65% per month. And oh. that was as long as you were refinanceable with anyone. At the moment, they're at 0.8%, which isn't, you know, you can get better deals on the open market. Mm-hmm. But yeah, with bridge the main the main benefits I think are speed in the sense of on a typical bridge, once the work's complete, you apply for the mortgage, and that takes a good three months or two months to start to finish. So that's two three months of interest you're going to pay on the bridge. Whereas with bridge to let, 
as soon as the work's finished, you call up and get a reinspection booked in with precise mortgages, for example. That gets ticked off and then the money gets drawn down within a week or two. So you save a lot of interest in that respect. Um, and of course, yeah, if you're risk averse and you want a really good idea of the valuation, then yeah, it's going to be confirmed. But what I do say is, even on a standard bridge, so if you bridge with Lend, Invest and remortgage somewhere else, if you give them your schedule of works, they will get the value as a comment on that anyway. Okay. Because a bridging lender is really concerned with the exit strategy. So if your exit is to refinance, they'll want to make sure you can refinance at the value you say anyway. So it's you know it's not it's not a unicorn product. It's good, but I think always compare and just make sure it works for you and your strategy. And so, is that then the difference between bridge to let versus bridge to refinance? Yeah, so I guess that's how I call it anyway. So bridge to let is an all-in-one with one lender, whereas a bridge and then refinance is you bridge with one lender, refinance with the other, simply because there are more competitive bridging options out there and there are more competitive mortgage options out there. So it's it's worth speaking to your brokers and asking for two scenarios and just seeing what plays out better for you and your kind of uh, strategy. Mm-hmm. The other thing as well is with the bridge to let, generally, again, looking at Precise who do the all-in-one, you can't get the cost of the works funded. So if there is cost of works, let's say 50 grand, you have to fund that yourself. Okay. Whereas with bridging lenders, a lot of them will fund the cost of the work subject to the uplift in the value. Mm-hmm. The other thing I think is just worth balancing out is with a bridge to let with Precise, the deposit has to either be your own or gifted from immediate family. Whereas with generally with bridging lenders, if you have the right lender, you can have investor loans, you can have gifts, you can have shareholder funds, you can have lots of quirky deposits. Okay. Um, not bounce back loans though, don't even ask, but everything <laughs> else is, is fine. Um, so yeah, it's, it's generally, I think it all depends on the project. If it's maybe quite a vanilla mainstream pro- project, then perhaps Bridge to Let. If it's your first project, perhaps Bridge to Let. But if it's quite quirky, if you're using a variety of deposit sources, then perhaps look at bridging and then refinancing. Because that's something you and I have been looking at recently, isn't it? But we're doing commercial. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're doing commercial. So. Commercial works like differently, you know, it depends on the asset. What is the asset producing? What's the exit? Guys, the main thing with bridging, anyone watching or listening, the exit strategy is key. Don't even go on a bridge unless you know how you're going to come out of it and work on a worst case scenario with your numbers and also work backwards. So what's the end value? Then what's the acquisition cost? Take that away. Are you leaving money in the deal? Are you making a profit? And then factor in the cost of finance. Does the deal still work, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is that something I've really been considering because I'm looking at a commercial deal right now and there are so many possible exits um, with that one. We can split the unit up. We could just re-gear the lease and happy days. That goes on to yeah. the next six years. Could do a refurbishment of the top floor into a residential, although I'm not a commercial to resi kind of girl, but fine. And split the two up and let the two units at the bottom. So there's loads of different options that I'm kind of considering in my in yeah. my um my own head but i think worst case scenario worst case scenario end value with that one would just be to re-gear the current lease mm-hmm. which sounds mad because i wouldn't have to go out and find another tenant but yeah and and that's minimal cost so yes. that is your worst case <laughs> that is my worst case minimal cost they want to stay for the next six years i re-gear the lease we refinance out onto longer longer term finance because then i've got a wider range of lenders and that seems to that would work quite nicely, but I would feel very uncomfortable even looking at that if I only had one option and that was slim. Yeah, 
yeah and and that's the thing you'll you know these are conversations you should be having with your broker and also with the lender if you're applying directly because some lenders will let you go direct just have these conversations really early on get your project manager involved and get all your ducks in the line before you apply because whilst bridging is quick it's going to be very slow if if you've got everything going on you don't know you're not focused on on the end goal mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i agree with you so you've recently predicted that the short-term let space will see more lenders coming back into it but with greater understanding of what investors are actually doing firstly yes. did they do they not understand what was going on with Airbnb? Like, what's the, what's yeah, the so it's interesting. I, I mean, interesting since I posted that, a lot of that has actually happened. But what lenders think or what surveyors think, because they rely on the surveyors, but what surveyors and lenders think when they hear short-term lets is one-night stays, weekend stays, stag parties, hen parties, you know, short actual short-term bookings, which, you know, a lot of people do, and that's fine. But a lot of the investors I work with, or you see on social media, they're targeting longer contract bookings they target mm-hmm. bookings for three months or four months at a time just shy of six months to get longer bookings now a lot of the lenders who did the short-term let in the past they were just looking at it as a short-term let market you know the seasonal ups and downs and, and all which actually doesn't reflect what's happening with investors if you've got a six-year contractor booking but actually it's four three four months at a time that is still short-term lets because there's no ASCs but you're pretty much secure with you know with the uh, the property. So I'm finding now. So I'm working with a, with a deal now actually with a lender called Hampshire Trust Bank. Uh, they're a commercial lender. So we're putting through a case. It's just been valued, and the only reason they let me do it on a service accommodation basis is that we've got proof that the client's got bookings from now till September. Okay. Um, and the the business development manager was like, oh, okay, Shaz, I didn't quite understand this. This could happen on short term let that you could have long bookings. So yeah, you can. So that is the sole reason. So the surveyor's gone out. He's actually commented, yeah, it looks good. You know, it looks reasonable, looks feasible. We'll get a commercial valuation. So I think a lot of that will happen where lenders will understand that you will get longer bookings and they'll instruct the surveyors to survey in that respect. Now, since I posted that, actually, a lot, of, a few lenders have come back in. So you've had this morning, or was it yesterday? I can't remember. But this morning, yesterday, you had Roma Finance come into the holiday let market. They're at 70% loan to value, but the rate is a little chunky. It's 4.99%, but it's a means to an end. You've got Westwood Loans doing it at 70% with, a, I think it's 4.2% is the rate, which is quite competitive, but it's only through certain packages. So you have to go through a packager to access that product. They want to limit the volume, the volume of business they're going to get. And then you've got Monmouthshire Building Society. So Monmouthshire is like a small, small building society based in South Wales but they're doing a limited company buy to let at 75% loan to value. Mm-hmm. And the rates are three and a half percent. So it's a pretty standard rate and a really good product. They will not lend if you're a portfolio landlord. So they want, what's the opposite of a portfolio landlord? They want armchair landlords, you know, <laughs> small time landlords, but they'll do them that product. And I was speaking to, so foundation home loans who stopped lending during the pandemic, they've started lending again. And one of the key products they used to have was a short-term let product. It's nice and simple. The value will just assess the property on an on a AST basis. Does it still work as a single-family unit? Yes, it does. Great. You can do short-term lets. They haven't bought that back yet. But I said to the, the business development manager, look, this was my main use for you guys. This is where I saw you guys fit. 
And it was a case of, look, we will bring it back soon enough. It's just, again, not everyone's working in the office yet. Some people are still working from home. We want to manage levels of business. Mm -hmm. But it's on their agenda. So lenders seem to be more comfortable with that now. And I think, just thinking ahead with what's going to happen in the UK and other countries, you know, holiday makers will be doing it, you know, within their own country now if you can't travel abroad so much mm-hmm. you still want to go on holiday but you may just want to go to another part of the country so i think the the airbnb short-term model will definitely see a boom, see a boom maybe mm-hmm, mm-hmm. do you know what i found in, in my santander mortgages that i've i've yeah. got it says if after 12 months i can now start i could then start using my properties as a short-term let is that standard wow did not know that send send me a screenshot of that. i'm going to <laughs> i was just I'm quite picky over my terms of yeah. conditions. I once, very on in my property investment career, made a very terrible mistake by not reading lenders' um, con- terms of agreement. And ever yeah. since, I have picked through everything. Um, yeah, and I, I saw that. I was like, oh, okay. Wow. So 12 months after showing income, and then I'm not going to move these on to uh, short-term lets because they just it's just too much hassle for me. But it was interesting that that was something mm. that, that had been written into it, which I'm not sure you whether we were seeing that on other longer-term buy-to-let products. Not as far as I've learned something today, not as far as I'm aware. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, new... you, should be, you should be a broker. Like, you should... <laughs> I just I just now read things in in far too much detail. I'm like, yeah. oh, options for me. Um, what other quirky products can we be seeing? What what where do you see this market going? What innovative things could we now be looking at as property investors? Um, it's interesting. I always I mean I always think that lenders generally are behind investors. They tend to follow what the investors are doing, not the other way around. Um, one product I particularly like, it's been available for a while uh, on bridging and short-term finance, but it's not, I'm guessing it's not, just not marketed well. Um, so a lot of lenders, what they do is they call it either an overdraft or a frequent flyer or revolving credit. But essentially, you can secure a, a facility on a property that you own that is either a small mortgage or no mortgage, so you have equity in it. Mm-hmm. So let's say you secure £500,000 because there's enough equity in that. That then makes you pretty much a cash buyer. You go to auction, purchase something else, but it's the money secured against the other asset. Okay. And it works like an overdraft. So you only pay interest when you use it and how long you use it for. And it's simple as calling up the lender, say, look, I've just seen this property and you need this much money. This is the basic plan. And they'll give the money within a couple of hours. So, yeah, I think revolving credit is a nice way of putting it. But wow. it's like an overdraft product on a bridge. I think it's really handy if you've got an asset that actually is sitting there with little no mortgage or no mortgage, just to reuse that money again and again, because buy, repurpose, refinance is really popular at the moment. And if you've got an asset sat there, because the, the benefit is you're not going to pay any more valuation fees, no more legal fees. It's all secured on that other asset that's that's mm-hmm. got the uh, facility on it. So I think I'm, I speak about that to everyone. Um, it's definitely a good product. So what, would that even work if, say, you had 60% loan to value on a property and, or it's not really yeah. worth it? It depends how valuable the property is because on that prop, on the, those products, you can go up to 75% loan to value. Okay. So you've still got 10%, but it depends what that 10% is worth in pounds, I guess. Okay. And so how would you even apply for that? Someone just comes to you and say, look, I've got this property. It's got this tiny mortgage on it. How could I use that as a as a kind of a cash cow to fund other pro- yeah. properties 
yeah, just approach myself or your broker. I mean, the, the lenders that will do it, I'll tell you the lenders, I don't really care. So the lenders are affirmative finance, you've got alternative bridging and you've got signature private finance. Mm-hmm. Um, alternative bridging and signature will only secure it on an investment property. Okay. But affirmative finance are comfortable doing it on a residential, the one you're living in, as long as the equity is there. Mm-hmm. It's a bit risky as long as you've got a good plan to fit it back because you, you know it's a house you're living in, you could get that taken off you. But yeah, so those are three key lenders. But yeah, just speak to your brokers, tell them what you want to do. Again, look, just because a product sounds good, it may not be the best one for you. So speak to your broker, talk about your long-term plan. It's a handy product if in the 18 months you're going to do multiple projects because then you're saving fees and so on. Yeah. If you're only going to do, say, one project in the 12 months, then there's no real benefit because it's just a bridging loan. You know? mm-hmm. So it's worth exploring your longer-term options. Okay, so... I guess one of the key takeaways then is you should be able to talk to your broker about what's going on. Absolutely. Yes. Yep. Definitely. Because that's how you're going to secure best finance. Because how many products do you have access to? Um, So I'm directly authorized, which means as many as are available. I, you know what, bridging finance, there's too many, there's too many lenders. I genuinely think there's too many lenders. Um, and sometimes it's kind of difficult to navigate because you need to know with basics, you know, if someone's purchasing below 50 grand, there's possibly three lenders will do it. And that's easier. But when you go to the bigger levels, there's so many lenders out there. It's, it can be a minefield. And this is why on social media, you have investors say, can someone recommend me a lender? And often my response is, look, you can, but you never, they're never going to turn around to you and say, hey, this isn't the best deal. So-and-so down the road can do you a better deal because why would they? So mm-hmm. this is where a broker comes in handy. Um, with mortgages, yeah, look, with mortgages, brokers will use like sourcing systems and criteria filtering options to get you what you need. But again, it's, it's just sitting down and having a chat and talking through long-term plans. I always think, think of the, the end, end goal. So what's your plan now? What's the plan for five years? Where do you want to be in 10 years and work backwards from that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think such, such a good, a good piece of advice because <laughs> people just, oh, they don't like, they don't think about what the long-term plan mm. is. They kind of just now, 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 but actually yeah, that's really helpful to, to, to have. And the other thing as well is just do things the right way. So this is very Gary Vaynerchuk. Patience is key. Patience. Because... So let's say you want to do a buy, refurbish, refinance, okay? Now, a lot of investors are like, well, can I just do it on a mortgage? No. Technically, you can, nothing's stopping you, but it may get you blacklisted by lenders. Now, the difference is if you did it on a bridging loan, you need a larger deposit. That may take you six months more to save that money up. But is it worth risking your investment future for the sake of six months? Mm -hmm. So have patience. Get, do things the right way so people often ask me is that actually a blacklist i'm like there probably isn't there probably genuinely probably isn't but what happens is when you um do refinance the underwriting process is manual so if you've gone from a mortgage and in three or six months refinance to another mortgage the new mortgage lender will see your credit file and they'll say okay fine you can see a mortgage here and it's been redeemed by us now what's going on oh are, they, are you going to do the same thing to us that you've done to this lender we don't want to lend you any money you do that once, you do that twice, and slowly then the amount of lenders you're going to have is going to become very small. So it's not worth the risk. Mm-hmm. Lenders probably don't police it enough, if I'm honest. Um, 
but it's not worth a broker risking their kind of license and just just do things the right way even if it takes a bit longer it'll be worth it in the end mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i agree with that so i've got some questions about um number one a new strategy that is now all over social media social housing yes social housing <laughs> what is a social housing mortgage and what's the difference between other mortgages well, so I actually really love social housing because it feels like I'm doing a good thing. Um, yeah. So social housing is when you are housing potentially vulnerable tenants. Now, they could just be ex-military who maybe just need a, you know, homes to stay. It could be ex-homeless who are not homeless anymore. Ex-victims of domestic abuse, just those types of tenants who may just have difficulties getting a house mm-hmm. themselves. The key thing with social housing is that they can't be any living carers. Okay. Because if there are, that falls into the realm of supported accommodation, supported living, which is a lot more pricey, a lot more niche. So social housing. Now, there isn't such a thing as a social housing mortgage. Like Lenders don't have specific products for that. Okay. All it means is only certain lenders who are okay with it. Now, the reason lenders don't tend to like it is because of the reputational risk. So if they ever had to repossess, the bad press of kicking out these types of tenants is just not for them. So... The lenders that are comfortable, or the lenders that kind of go to for this, you've got Fleet Mortgages, uh, you've got Aldermore, you've got Paragon. They're the three main who'll do it. All three will want to see a copy of the lease agreement up front. That is to make sure they know who exactly is guaranteeing the rent and has to be a registered social landlord, a charity, or the council, mm-hmm. generally a government body, basically. Uh, they want to look at the break clauses. So they want to make sure the lease actually allows you to have a break clause and allows you, because if not, they're going to have trouble repossessing if mm-hmm. there's no break clause or review points. And they also want to make sure that the review period at the end is not guaranteed because if you've got a three-year lease with a seven-year review extension, then that's a 10-year lease, isn't it, if you mm-hmm. can automatically renew. So they want to make sure those things aren't there. But send that to your broker. They'll send it to a lender. The lender will sign it off. And after that, it's generally then just a standard HMO mortgage. So your okay. usual, yeah, you, now you typically need two years landlord experience. Mm-hmm. That isn't because of social housing. That's just because these lenders for HMO products have that requirement. You will need a minimum of £15,000 personal income. And that, again, is just because the lenders need that. But other than that, it's just a standard HMO product. So I think I've been doing it for the best part of eight months now. Um, a lot of the people involved with social housing kind of, I guess, recommend me uh, from the Midlands. And it's very popular. And what I found was during the pandemic, the landlords who had this setup were actually fine because it's guaranteed rent by the government and there's no voids, no repairs. And it, you know, it's, I think it's, it's a rare win-win if mm-hmm. I'm honest. Mm. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. I know. Yeah. A couple of my clients are doing it now and I'm really enjoying it because it's giving back to society, but it's yeah. also, um, yeah, you've got the government backing. So it's fantastic. Do you offer lending for overseas investors and how are those products differing? Yeah, sure. So I guess there's, there's two brackets there. There's just complete foreign nationals who maybe have a UK footprint or don't have a UK footprint at all. There is lending available. And interestingly, the um, lenders such as Gatehouse Bank and Al Rayan, the Sharia mortgage lenders who deal normally with that sort of funding, they come with complete foreign investors. And that includes HMOs and okay. you know, blocks as well. Expats now, again, the market's opened up. So when I first started doing specialist finance, three, four years ago, it was very difficult to get an expat mortgage or it'd be very expensive. But now it's quite open. Um, the key things are as long as you've got a UK footprint, so a bank account, and if you've got property in the UK, even easier because you're paying 
tax on that income, it's fairly straightforward and the rates are pretty competitive as well. Um, you're not paying way over the odds. Lenders are happy. As long as you've got a UK footprint, you can be traced, you've got a credit record somewhere, they're pretty happy. Foreign nationals, like I say, is a little more difficult, a little more niche, but it would be because you know, you're based abroad, you're not paying UK tax, no UK footprint, there's no mm. real way to trace you. But expats is uh, a lot more mainstream, I'd say. And how much are you looking interest rate-wise? So it's, it's strange. So a lot of the quirkier, smaller building societies, their rates are really competitive, but they only offer tracker products that can go up and down. Okay. If you're looking for a fixed rate, then it's slightly more limited. You're looking at rates of about 35 to 4% okay. if you want to fix it. But it's not the end of the world. I think it's manageable. Um, and you've got the asset in the UK and you're going to make a bit of income as well. Yeah, I do. I do. Um, will lenders look at first-time landlords who don't own their own properties? Potentially. So, again, two brackets there. So, first-time landlord. So, if you're a first-time buyer, first-time landlord, so you don't own the house you're living in and you've not got any property at all, yes, you can. However, it's assessed the same way as a residential mortgage. So, what's your income? What's your expenditure? How much can you borrow? that's the maximum you're going to lend. The reason for that is the risk, I suppose, is you may just move into that property. Mm-hmm. So to mitigate that risk, they want to assess it as a residential mortgage. Okay. If you are a homeowner um, and you buy your first bike property, that's a lot easier. Plenty of lenders out there. It's just based on the rental. But yeah, first-time buyer, first-time landlord, it's personal affordability. And that can be difficult. Again, you see a lot of people come off the kind of property courses you know, relatively young, very keen to get into property and they've got no experience. I suppose what you can do is maybe join up with a parent. Mm-hmm. They've got the experience, that ticks the box, and then suddenly you can get a mortgage. But your parent has to be comfortable that they're going to be equally liable for the mortgage should you not pay. It's a lot to think about. Mm-hmm. Okay, but it's a possibility. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Will lenders lend to landlords who only have uh, self-employed income and how can landlords ensure they will get lending if they're in this situation? Yes, definitely. So if you are a full-time landlord, now, if that is your only income, then what I would expect as a broker, and also I was trying to be, put myself in the shoes of an underwriter, so what I'd expect then is you to have at least two years tax returns showing income from land and property, because that is your income. Mm-hmm. So yeah, as long as you've got income proof, that's fine, but you do need a track record at least a year. Then it's up to the broker to position you as a full-time landlord. So you just put yourself as self-employed and show the income there. That is fairly straightforward. A lot of lenders, as I mentioned, don't even have a minimum income requirement. So your income could be fairly minimal, your profit, and it ticks a box. Um, so that's fine. So what was the follow-up question to that? And <laughs> if they are self-employed, not as landlords, would they still? Yeah, as long as you can evidence the income, that's okay. the key thing. So what you're doing, what's the evidence? Uh, if you're new, so I think there is a gray period. So you have some people maybe just switch in from work, PAY work, to being full-time in property. And there is a bit in between where you've got no income coming in or you can't evidence because you've just started self-employed. That's where we'll need to work with a lender who has no minimum income and is satisfied that the rental will cover the, what they need for the mortgage. Mm-hmm. But then, as I said, it's about plausibility. Okay, fine, you've just got self-employed, not a problem. Do you have anything in savings or in your account to cover voids and repairs should they happen? Okay. Okay. So again, it's about how you present yourself, making sure that you've covered all the basis. Don't be trying to do something that's going to bankrupt you out the gate because yeah. 
it's it's about yeah it's about positioning you as well you know so how how will you be best being positioned and i always say as well if, if there's anything quirky about you if you've had if you missed a credit card payment like six months ago it's not the honestly it's not the end of the world but tell the broker so the broker can address that up front and then it's a non-issue but it's an issue if the underwriter comes back and says oh we noticed this happened tell us more because then it's like oh well you were hiding it and now you've been found out Mm-hmm. Whereas if you open about it, it's it's a lot easier to overcome. Mm-hmm. Okay. And final question, actually, can I ask you about commercial mortgages? How much? Yes, sure. How much would we be looking for a commercial mortgage? What interest rate and what loan to value right now? So commercial is interesting because it depends on the asset. Um, so some investors will call a HMO commercial if it's got more than seven bedrooms, mm-hmm. just because that means they expect a commercial valuation. Yeah. So that's the difference there. But commercial, if it's retail, um, you're looking at rates around 5%. The key lenders you've got is Interbay and Shawbrook. Mm-hmm. But you've also got Lloyd's Commercial and NatWest Commercial. It really depends on the asset. But yeah, rates from about 45 to 5%. And you'll need to be putting down at least 25% deposit. What they generally look for is, you know, who's the tenant? What kind of lease have you got? What, how, and especially now is those are the things they're going to question. Who are the tenants? How stable is their business? If it's, for example, let's just think of an example. If it's a tattoo parlor, they're going to say, well, how long will it be till these guys open again because of the close contact mm-hmm. and what's going to happen to their business? So, yeah, the tenant is key. Okay. So, yeah, but semi-commercials, I, semi-commercial for me is a lot more straightforward because generally then, as long as the rental from the residential side covers everything, it's a lot more straightforward. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So let's finish up. First question. Yeah. What keeps you motivated even on tough days when you're getting the when you're getting knocked back with lenders or the clients are being frustrated? How do you stay like strong? Stay in the zone. So I don't know, there's a cliche thing of, you know, think about your why and all of that, which I do, but if I'm honest, for me it's about just being able to sleep sleep at night. So I just want to make sure I've done the right thing. I've done all I can. Um, and that everyone knows what's going on. So I think communication is key. I think deliver bad news in the way you would good. Um, and just make sure everything's done. I think also for me personally, I've got a to-do list. And if it's not all done, by the time I leave the office, it'll, it will stress me out. Mm-hmm. So I want to get everything done and then just move on to the next day. Mm-hmm. So it's about focus, you know, just focus on what you're doing and just being able to sleep easy at night. I can't, some, some things I hear about other people, I'm like, wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> um, How are you dealing with social media at the moment? It's like overwhelming for a lot of people talk to me about social media how do you find it what do you do to block out the noise um so social media so i guess for me it's necessary i think half my day is on social media which is weird because i'm a mortgage broker but the actual mortgage part of the job is really small the sales and marketing which is social media is quite large um and as we're not going to many networking events anymore because they're all it's all it's all social media it's all zoom it's all facebook but you're right there's a lot of noise um the advice i'd give people is just you know if someone's giving you advice kind of just figure out who is the person giving you advice what what's their credibility like Uh, one thing about social media is so there's a lot of property groups you know like progressive and well samuel leads and there's like maybe 10 different main property groups but then you'll have people posting the same thing each group so when my phone notifications start going, I'm just the amount of face. I'm just like facepalming, like oh my god, like it's because it kills my phone. But um, I think there's a lot of misadvice. You'll have a lot of investors 
trying to give financial advice or mortgage advice. And I'm just like, look, leave the stick to your lanes, you know? So talk about investment advice, let the financial advisors talk about financial advice, let the accountants do tax advice because it's a qualified thing. You shouldn't be giving advice on social media, especially on a, based on a social media post. Um, but social media is good. I don't know if I'm negative. I mean, it's how I get a lot of my business. So I tend to just post content I think is valuable and, you know, here we go and it's helpful. And yeah, people will message me and inbox me and say, Shaz, can you tell us more? Let's talk more about this. Um, it's definitely useful because I think when mm -hmm. you look back then in six months, you'll have a catalog of your greatest hits, you know, things that you've yeah. spoken about and you can reuse that content, put it into a PDF and it's, it's all good. I enjoy social media. I just think, like you said, there's a lot of noise right now, especially now because everyone's got more time to be noisy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's very true. Yeah. Finally, how do you see the market changing over the coming months and years? I mean, we're coming out of COVID. Hopefully mm -hmm. that happens before the end of the year, but I know yeah. there's a lot of tenants struggling and then we've got Brexit to deal with, which currently does not look like it's going particularly yeah, it's well. Yes, it's still a thing, Brexit. No one's, <laughs> no one's even talking about it. And the thing is, no. there's not even a deal on the table and we're meant to be leaving mm. at the end of January. So, wow. <laughs> What do you think from a from a lending point of view what are we going to see how do we keep ourselves um pretty like risk adverse in this situation so i would first of all review what you've got in your portfolio um look at what overall loan to value on gearing you know you've got if you're above say 70 75 percent then maybe just consider paying some of those mortgages down because if values do dip you don't want to be in negative equity that's if there's a major crash i don't think there will be but i think one thing that will happen is when this whole furlough scheme ends, which I think is what end of October. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing some now from some personal friends and family where, you know, they're being either looked to reassign roles or just being made redundant. So if that's happening, that's going to knock on effect to buyers. And also if people can't get residential mortgages because a lot of people are pulling out of the 95% first time buyer market, there'll be more demand for rentals. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting time. I think, but I think that, yeah, the furlough scheme ending, well, that's going to make a big impact personally, because if people are out of jobs, then they're not going to be applying for residential mortgages. They're going to want to rent. That will increase rental demand. In terms of mortgages and rates, I think lenders are being cautious. So Nationwide, for example, pulled out of 95% mortgages recently. But their statement said, we're just safeguarding our assets and our clients that we've already got, which is fair. So they're, and they know more about this, you know, I'm not an economist, but they mm -hmm. probably employ someone and pay them thousands of pounds to make that kind of decision. Um, so people ask me, do rates going to go up? And it's not as simple as a rate's going to go up. It's a sim it's, I think rates are what they are, but I think access to the money might be slightly more restricted. So you'll be asked more questions, more serious landlords are coming to play. Um, it's interesting times for sure. I mean, what I found though is touch wood, I've, been as busy as ever it's not slowed down mm -hmm. just yet so investors are still actively investing hopefully lenders will see that and just not not be too restrictive mm -hmm. i hope so i hope so too <laughs> shaz it's been a pleasure thank you yeah absolutely thank, thank you, you for having me my pleasure thank you for coming on the podcast and being so honest and giving us details about lenders guys if you're listening to this podcast and you want to get in contact with Shaz I'm going to put all of his social media links in the notes below so make sure that you get in contact with him 
below. Yeah, yep. do make sure that you click on that. Follow Shaz on social media at least because he comes out with some fantastic things about finance and lending and all that's in between. Um, so do make sure that you're doing that. That's the requirement of this podcast and getting this far through. <laughs> if you've enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to rate and review because the more that you do that, the more people that have access to this and the more that they get all of this information as well. Thank you so much for listening to us today. I cannot wait to catch up with you again soon.